Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Are the Rockets done without CP3 for the near future? Was DeAndre Ayton worth the number one pick? Do you know the dirty little secret about Joel Embiid? The only question left is, say it with me, you win. Hey, sports fans, Coach Nick here, and welcome to the B-Ball Breakdown Podcast. As always, I'm joined this week by Jared Weiss, who is an NBA writer for The Athletic, and uh, we're going to talk some basketball. So, Jared, how's it going today? Phenomenal. Ready to talk about Chris Paul having another great moment in his season. You know, I, I always forget about contracts. I, I never really assume anyone's going to get injured when I'm watching and doing evaluations because literally in the beginning of the game, as you're watching James Harden nail threes, and I'm like, you know what? If he's figured out his three-point issue, they're right back at the top of the Western Conference. And then like 20 minutes later, uh, Chris Paul is easily out for that's, – that's got to be a month to six weeks, I'd imagine, easy, especially because it's the same uh, hamstring he injured in the playoffs last year. Um, so and his age too, and his age, and they clearly aren't as good without him on the floor. So this is a real problem. And the video I did questioning whether they're, they're going to make the playoffs is now even more uh, appropriate here because if they have to deal with uh, you know another fifteen twenty games without him, you know they might not be able to recover. There, I need to pull this up how far out they are right now, but I think that he is enough in the West that. You can probably it isn't until game 65 where things probably get really tricky for everyone where maybe you're a little too far out to come back. So they're currently oh they actually are in seventh place right now, yeah. which, you know, by the time this podcast comes out in 12 hours, they could be in last place for all we know. So <laughs> right. that's just the way it's been going this year. But yeah, I mean, the Wolves are two or three. Let's see. They're two and a half games out of eighth place. And they're in 14th place in the West. So the point is they can be pretty much anywhere it, until we get to the last 20 games or so of the season. There's pro- they're probably not going to really be in the danger zone. And it's it's amazing to see that they have a winning record because their season's been such a train wreck. And they've barely been even good with both James and Chris out there. I mean, at least it's Chris that got hurt as opposed to Harden because – Harden's been really Harden's been pretty much amazing offensively this year. Chris has really been struggling, and you know their issue is simply we we went, we went over this last week. Their depth is not good right now, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to guard depth. They have a significant problem there. They're going to have to push Brandon Knight a little bit to try to get him back into the fold, and we'll see if that's if that works. I mean, you know, that's, if you're worrying about Brandon Knight being your savior at this point, then you're probably in trouble. But I guess the good news is it doesn't appear that there's a, you know, a significant tear at this point. Hopefully no further testing is going to reveal that. And then he can come back in a month and a half. But yeah, this month and a half is going to pretty much define their season. I agree. And I feel like, you know, and it's totally anecdotal, but I kind of want to say that like, this is now the moment in the schedule 
where the teams are kind of starting to solidify what they're doing. We, a really rough start for a lot of teams like Utah and San Antonio. Well, we, we're all of a sudden, San Antonio goes on a bit of a run, and now they're uh, in the playoffs as well, I believe. Let me check that, make sure that I reload. Uh, yeah, yeah, they're, they're in the A spot, tied. But, you know, everyone's bunched up. But they were really not good. They won seven in the last ten, and so are the Rockets. Um, you know, the Thunder are making a bit of a run, too. So I almost feel like this is now the time when they're going to solidify their, their lineups, figure out what they do best now that the, you know, the, the beginning of the season's over. So that's what I kind of think about when I'm wondering what's going to happen with the Rockets, if they're going to just struggle. Now, if they stay, you know, 500, then, yeah, they'll probably stay in that. They probably will drop out below eighth, but not far enough to be out of it. Um, but again, this is a long way to, to drop considering where they came from uh, last year. Well, here's the issue, and we're and for the record, we're taping during the third quarter right now of the Heat game, so we don't know what's gonna, what the results going to be there. The rest, there here's their schedule going up until January 9th: San Antonio, Oklahoma, Boston, New Orleans, Memphis, Golden State, Portland, Denver, and then Milwaukee. Wow! So they're facing pretty much all the best teams in the NBA over the next few weeks here. They, I mean, they, they could plummet very easily here. Yeah. This this could be this could be a huge drop off where they fall to the back of the pack and then even get a little bit more distance between them. So I'm definitely really worried about them. Uh, it does help when you have a guy that can drop 40 a night for you. But uh, trying to think like where where is the fix coming from? I mean, the, the, it's going to mean that Eric Gordon's going to be way more relied upon in the offense. Gordon's been a mess all year. And is it do you simply just basically put Gordon into the kind of into that de facto role of what CP3 was doing before and just have Harden handle even more than he was before? You know, you're going to have to do something like that. And Gordon looks a little bit better. I mean, he was shooting better in the beginning of the game. He's down to three for nine from three now. That's a lot of threes to be taking before the fourth quarter even starts. Um, and I, I, it's interesting because a guy like Gordon, you, you tend to be able to think you can rely on him and he's good. But um Listen, they're already struggling right now down uh, down by four at the end of the third quarter against the Heat, and that's not a good sign for them either. So, um, yeah, I don't know what the solution is KCP, but then does he really move the needle anyway uh, as another guard they can try and get? Uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, they're, I mean, you can't, you, can't, you can't make an acquisition to get over losing a player for a month or a month and a half, right. I, I, especially at this point of the season where there is enough time to make up ground. But... Yeah, I mean, if the prognosis gets worse, then that does change things because I think for them, if they're not giving up a real long-term asset, sacrificing a short-term asset to ensure they get to the playoffs is really important because they have the talent on board where they can sneak into the playoffs at the you know and not have home court advantage in the first round. And they can still make a really deep run because they have so much talent. But I mean, obviously, been what we, with what we've been seeing so far this year. They've been so discombobulated that they haven't really even been close to recapturing the magic that they had last year. Mm -hmm. So it, they probably needed an acquisition no matter what. But if they need just some sort of Band-Aid for a couple months here, as long as you're not giving up a first-round pick, I think it's not a bad idea. Right. Now, the, and the issue is, it's like, do you believe, like, did you think that this was like uh, uh, done, this was going to happen? Chris Paul was going to hurt his hamstring. He keeps hurting it, <laughs> always this thing. That, like, it seems like everyone like, was expecting it on Twitter when you're reading these replies. But uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe they're right. Maybe, you know, certainly once you do it, it's like it's easy to do it again. You know, it's, well, it makes me think that maybe he had a, a slight tear. I mean, obviously when you strain 
a hamstring that is by medical definition, what like the, a micro tear basically. But so maybe he had a more significant strain back in the playoffs than, than we are aware of. And so maybe it wasn't completely fully healed, which is, that was kind of the issue that Kawhi Leonard was dealing with, right? I mean, Kawhi was dealing with something kind of, I guess it might have been the calf, right? But, you know, any sort of lower muscle injury, you know, leg muscle injury is always extremely tricky and really hard to diagnose as far as timeline. So maybe CP3 has just been dealing with this issue the entire time. Mm -hmm. And that's why he's looked a step slow this year. And that's why his shooting has been a little bit off. So this could just be a simple result of something that was kind of bubbling under the surface and it finally kind of broke. Yeah. And you always want to look at the minutes played per game because it's always a, it's an overuse thing as well. Uh, you know, he was playing 34 minutes, which was two minutes a game more than he was even last year, a little bit more than two minutes than more than last year. That's, that's, that's a significant thing. Uh, you, you, if you want to be able to get Chris Paul, to the playoffs healthy, then, you know, you have to keep him at like 30, I would think it max and, and, you, Tony, and you're giving him nights off to rest, too. Yeah, and they, they his weren't age, doing you have him, right? to do that. What's he that? Was, he wasn't taking nights off. I mean, looking at his no? uh, the logs, he had a, you know, a three-game stretch in the middle where he didn't play, didn't dress. But that wasn't related, I don't think, to like giving him rest. I, got, I had to go back and find out. But either way, you're looking at... the suspension, at, I think? Oh, right. That's what it was in the fight. So, the, you know, the last nine games... You know, it's it's all, you know, his re- he's playing 30, 37, 33, 37, 36, 36. I mean, that's it's a problem. And the problem also is, is they, they're close games. They're trying to win. So he has to kind of play that and it's going to be a, it's going to wear him out. So that might be where I'd say, OK, that's your recipe for disaster when D'Antoni's going to play him that many minutes. And that, what really hurts is when they're in those tight games, that means that your most intense usage is coming at your most fatigued point. Mm-hmm. And you know, that was the beauty of what the Warriors have been doing is they were blowing teams out. So like their guys were resting in the fourth quarter. So not only did they manage their load pretty well, but they also had sh- much shorter games, too. Mm-hmm. And he, I think Houston was doing that a lot last year where they were blowing yeah. teams away and they were able to take it easy. And, you know, when you when you play ISO style ball attack, like their whole strategy is try to get a big on an island and attack them in ISO. That is that's like the most fatiguing thing that a point guard would have to do is to try to attack a big man where you got to play with some bursts of speed and physicality and you're hitting the brakes really hard and you're really putting a lot of torque on that hammy. So CP3 has been probably pushing his body way more than it should have been so far this year. And we're seeing the you know, we're seeing the regrettable outcome of what happens when you don't manage minutes on these guys. And there's also a regrettable outcome for most men as the minutes of their lives begin to pile up and move into their 30s. I mean, I walk around like I've got a permanent pulled hamstring every day. You can look and feel your best right now by using Hims, a new wellness brand for men. The equivalent of long two-point shots is letting your hair thin out and go bald. So get proactive and avoid the hair loss that 66% of men start to suffer by age 35. The solution? Visit 4hims.com where you can take care of hair loss, skin care, and sexual wellness. My hair looks thick, the skin under my eyes smooth, and the permanent smile on my wife's face are all thanks to HIMS. They connect you with real doctors and medical grade solutions so you can avoid the waiting room and awkward exams in your underwear. Order now and you'll get a trial month of HIMS for just $5 while supplies last. See website for full details. This would cost hundreds if you went to the doctor or pharmacy. So go to 4hims.com slash coachnick. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S 
Bet.com slash Coach Nick. And in case your ears needed help too, it's forhims.com slash Coach Nick. Well, let's talk about DeAndre Ayton over the Suns because he was the number one pick. And no one was quite sure, at least I was had my doubts about how he would play. But what would you think? What do you think about him so far this year? What grade would you give him? Oh, great. That's interesting. Um, maybe like a, I'd say a B plus probably. Okay. He's, uh, he's, he's, you know, he's putting up stats on a, on a team, but what, 18, 19 years old and he's doing it. I mean, he's putting up pretty huge numbers lately. Yeah. He's basically pulling off 2010 almost every single night. That's yeah. impressive. And, uh, but you know, yeah. let's not uh, ignore, they've won, I think four in a row, five in a row. Like they're actually on a roll here. They've and the last one, row. and the last one that they won. Over the Celtics, I was at that game. I got to watch him up close, so I really wanted to talk about him after seeing that game. I mean, he he doesn't even look that good yet, and he's already he's already scoring with ease. I mean, he's gonna he's gonna be a monster. You know, the big I think the big question is basically is it gonna be an Andre Drummond or is it gonna be more of a Joel Embiid? And I, it's I think it's definitely the latter. I mean, just just right off the bat, he's a really good shooter from 15 feet. He's got those spots kind of at the at each end of the free throw line where he's able to shoot from like 15 feet. Uh, the, you know, the issue is that when he was coming into the draft, I think we were all expecting that he would be a knockdown three point shooter, obviously not, not right away, but like it would be a part of his game that he would try to use and he'll, he'd eventually grow, eventually grow into it. And we haven't really seen him try to be a three point shooter at all so far. So that's been a little bit disappointing, especially cause um, Mo Bamba has been doing that. You know, Mobamba is someone who wasn't really much of a shooter at Texas and really worked over the summer to develop his three-point shooting. It definitely helped him in the draft. We saw in the workouts that he was able to do it, but we didn't see a ton of evidence in actual playing footage. And then this year, he's been occasionally taking those threes, and we haven't seen that progress from Eaton. But, you know, so I, I'm definitely worried about um, him adding stuff to his game that I feel like other – we're seeing other young prospects are able to add to their game pretty rapidly, and he hasn't really done that. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, his whole thing has been basically he's a he's a really good low block scorer. And he was in college, and he had to come to the NBA. And learning how to score on the block in the NBA is really tricky because you no longer can just throw a hook over every single guy that you go against. You no longer can move every single guy out of the way. you got to learn technique, all that kind of stuff. And I was watching him. Uh, the other night, just working with Corliss Williamson, their assistant coach in Phoenix, who was just teaching him how to kind of change your pace when you're hitting guys so that you can throw them off balance. And that's how you get to your jump hook or get to your reverse pivot moves. And so he's starting to learn all that kind of stuff. So it definitely it definitely makes me optimistic. That he's going to really grow into his game and grow into a really good, well-rounded, mature game. But then when you compare it to Luka Doncic, it's like Luka's already at that point. And that's right. what just so, makes him so remarkable. Well, here's the thing. I think you missed who the the the, uh, the proper comparison is, and only and maybe only because it's not someone who's playing right now, but someone who did play for the Suns. When you look at the guy and he can shoot from the elbows, he can actually put the ball on the ground a little bit and make some plays that way. Uh, he can post uh-huh. up, he can set screens and run. I'm thinking Amari Stoudemire because like he he's much more fluid in his mo- mo- in his movement than even like Embiid is. And he's thinner. He's, he's just more like, you know, uh, more of a live, you know, active, a flexible guy than I than I feel like Embiid is. And so 
to me, that's what I'm thinking is like, wow, this guy could be like a bigger version of, of Amari Stoudemire. And I think one of the, fault, the, the, the faults or the problems that he ended up having is he never developed that three-point shot either. And he, would have, he could have gone down, aside from the injuries, <laughs> if he could have stretched it to three, then you would have seen him you know, as one of the all-timers, I'd imagine, uh, without, again, without the injury. So that's who I'm thinking he should be. And so it's frustrating to me that he's not getting like what Mo Bamba is, which is those two threes a game, just to get the reps. And you know, Mo Bamba is shooting 33%. It's not even like a horrible thing right now. And, I, and, and the form I see from him, uh, from Aiton, indicates to me that, like, yeah, I think he would probably be at least that good. Well, you know why you lo- you're going to love DeAndre Aiton? Guess if he's a rim watcher or a ball watcher. <laughs> I'm, he watches the ball in a shot? He watches the ball in a shot. Do you have a he's footage got of that? Yeah, uh, I think so. I'll, I'll, I'll have to double check. But I was watching for that uh, before the game. I was thinking of you. And he's got the index finger follow through. Oh. And he's got the full gooseneck. So he's got all that stuff down. What I like is he's got that down on like his 12-foot jumper. You know, a lot of bigs have trouble figuring out if they can go into a full jumper. But that's good because that shows that he's got good body control. And, and that's what I like yeah. about him is that I think he still needs to lower his center, center of gravity. He still needs to get a little bit bigger. His stance probably needs to get a little bit wider. But he has really good feel with his lower body. And he doesn't trip over his own feet. And that's I think that's what's going to allow him to just kind of – spin around guys the way that Towns and Embiid can do it. And I do really like that Stoudemire comparison because he seems like he can attack off, you know, from the deep elbow and have a really quick burst to him. And, you know, Embiid, for as amazing as he is, it's there's a little bit of a lumbering factor to him where he takes a big, heavy step, but he's just so powerful and so explosive that once he gets an angle on you, he's just going to push you out of the way and you're mm-hmm. done for while Aiton, I think, maybe maybe will have a little bit more finesse game to him the way that Towns does. Right. I, I, and that's great. It's what the modern center is becoming, aside from a guy like Embiid, who also can put the ball on the ground and shoot from behind the line. So that's what I'm thinking. You know, it's it's it, it also reminds me a little bit of like even Greg Oden when he was really healthy coming in. There's a little body comparison there, movement um, kind of. Although Oden, the, the movement people, the functional movement people, I guess would have told you way ahead of time that he was going to have a lot of issues the way he moved. But there's something about the gait and the way he moves that is uh, there's a version of that. That and, and remember, people forgot that Greg Oden was actually really good. He had a lot of a lot of skills that uh, he could oh, insane you know, display. So uh, that's what I'm thinking. And it's just a shame that they're not opening up the floor right now to get uh, just to give space for everybody uh, to get the driving lanes. We're watching, um, you know, five out with the Bucks, And it's like, they, you know, Brooke Lopez will post up a little bit. But for the most part, he's spreading the floor, too. And there's just so much space for all those guys to get into the gaps. And um, I feel like right now they're just rel- they, like he's just bouncing about block to block a lot and uh, clocking it up a little bit. So that's what I'm waiting to see. But here's the thing I don't get. Why is he the number one pick? Why is Bagley the number one pick? And why aren't they picking guys? I guess Doncic is sort of in that realm. But like, why aren't they picking Mikhail Bridges number one? The guy that's going to be able to guard <laughs> KD and nail threes. Like that's what I think should be the priority for teams going forward. You know, I know it's a hyperbole, but I still don't get why the three and D six eight six nine guy who can move and who can shoot uh, isn't the priority for teams. Because that's an accessory player. Your pri- your the number one pick is for a player that you build the entire system around. The player you're describing is a complementary player. I'm describing so KD. Think- 
Aren't I? Well, Katie, KD, a little bit more than a three and D guy. I mean, KD, you can build. Katie's a thirty-point scorer that you can build an entire system around. Mikael Bridges, who I think projects to be a very good three and D player, uh, maybe like an Otto Porter type player. Although that's a bad comparison because everyone's dogging Otto Porter lately. But or maybe Kelly Oubre, his new teammate. That's a, a, maybe a better comparison there. Although Oubre's shooting's been inconsistent. But you're, you're this. The point I wanted to make in this discussion is that. Doncic should have been the first pick because the most valuable thing that teams can acquire and the, I think the pretty consistent trend over the last decade of championship teams has been an unbelievable offensive playmaker and shooter that can that you can build a cohesive system around. And that's more important than even really having a great two-way player necessarily. That defense can be handled by the other four players on the court, but it's that player – being able to execute offensive, you know, be able to execute on offense against the most incredible defenses. That's that one thing that separates them from everyone else. And that's what you're looking for at the first pick. And that's why I thought Doncic should have been the first pick and why I think probably the majority of the scouting community seems to agree with that assessment. And then but let's talk about position as well, because this notion of the center and you're going to build around him as number one pick. The center is one of the most marginalized positions around. Capella is a guy that you can win a championship with at that position, pretty much. And is Aiton going to be as good as Capella? Like, he, he, right? He should be better than that. But, like, do you need better than that, in theory, from that position? And, you know, because think about it. Think about the elite teams we've had in the last several years. Right. I'm like right now, the Warriors come to mind, the, the Rockets come to mind. It's like they, they're they, they're not building their team around that position. Am I, I know I'm am I missing somebody that had, a, you know, I guess the Sixers. Was that it? I think the last I think the last team to be to reach the finals that ran their offense through their big man, excluding the Spurs, because, you know, they had a top 10 player of all time. was probably the 08 Celtics. I can't think of anyone else. I guess maybe no, the, Lakers the Lakers at the same time doing it through Powell. But yeah. that was what another year basically after that, and you know, so yeah. the, that era, and then we transitioned to the you know four out era with Miami, you know, with Miami and San Antonio, they were running four and five out systems, right? And, and then and it's Duncan, been the same thing ever since. And Duncan was always next to Splitter. He was, like, you know, he wasn't the center really, right, in those in those teams anyway. But but not a bad point uh, that he at least he was there. So I, I don't know if we're going to have it again. I mean, I think that's we're now years and years off from that when they were elite. And it's almost like, you know, that position isn't going to, you know, like maybe the, what is that position supposed to be now? It's supposed to be a rim runner or a well, so pick and pop guy, right? That's it. It's been more so recently a pick and pop guy. But I think a big thing that it's one of the sticks is, and this was the thing I really focus on in the preseason, is the points of emphasis. I think of really, really reopened pick and roll play. Because when defenses are switching, they no longer can hold on to the big man and big men are able to get free rolls. So I feel like we're seeing a lot more rolls for lobs, guys able to get into the post and, you know, and kind of get a deep seal. And so teams are actually it seems to be posting up even more this year. I, I, I don't have my synergy open, so I can't check the numbers on that. But anecdotally, that's something I've been really seeing. And I think it makes pick drafting for pick and roll more viable. I mean, when Phoenix made that pick, I don't know if they were necessarily aware of what the points of education were going to be. So I don't think they were really expecting that. But they were I guess they were expecting teams are switching against bigs on pick and rolls now. So we want a guy that can roll to the rim and really cause problems. And to Eaton's credit, I, he needs a lot of work uh, on his pick and roll game. But he already is getting like 10 points a game just off of rolls, just getting lob over the top. 
screening and rescreening stuff like that. His screen, his screens are kind of they're kind of ineffective. He still shies away from contact. He's got to get lower, that kind of stuff. But he's kind of just patiently rolling to the rim, waiting for Devin Booker to throw him something. And he gets like 10 points a game just off of that right there. So that's right. easy money for them. Fair enough. We haven't talked about his defense, which is not – it's kind of not good. Uh, there's an effort issue there. There's also spatial awareness stuff. We see some of his teammates uh, getting frustrated with him for sort of not positioning himself. Uh, he seems like a great kid. Seems like a good learner, like a, or a willing learner. And I suspect that that you know once he learns angles better on pick and rolls and how to contain better, which I, I doubt he got much of like in college. Uh, perhaps like that will improve. I hope. But I, I am a little bit concerned on that end because I have seen some evidence of. Uh, you know, sort of non-engagement uh, on that on that side at the very least, which is what you would expect at least to have that uh, uh, if they don't have the proper positioning. Uh, I have you seen that? Oh, definitely. And this is where you know I forgot to bring up Jaron Jackson before, probably because he's just offensively not on, on that level. But I mean, Jackson, watching him early this year, you can see he's just physically engaged the entire time. He's low in his stance. He's moving. He's reading. You know, one thing that I, I kind of learned it more from soccer than basketball from watching European soccer, but the really good defenders are constantly like moving their heads back and forth. They're constantly looking around. They're rechecking where everybody is on the court it, really frequently throughout the game. And you watch guys like Draymond Green and Al Horford, the really smart, elite big man defenders. You can see that they're just constantly rescanning the court the entire time. And I think Jackson seems to have that innate ability. Marcus Gasol, of course, who he's learning from, another one of those great players. And DeAndre seems like he's just—he's not—he's just reading the ball and the guy in front of him. And I think that's where most big men are when they enter the league. And so I guess most of those guys end up to be average defenders. But you know, and if he's—if he's a guy that can put up 26 and 12 and be an average defender. That's good enough for him to be on the level that we see like Jokic and Carl Towns on and stuff like that. But those guys, I mean, Jokic is Jokic is running that offense at a level that he's kind of in the MVP conversation. But to be a real MVP level player, the way that Embiid and Davis have been considered so far this year, you also have to be not only can you like shut guys down at the rim, but you need to be able to coordinate pick and roll defense. You need to be able to call out the right assignments you need to be able to call over for weak side help and know how everything's going to be coordinated and that's something that i think those guys can do on top of just their awareness and their recovery ability is out of this world and deandre is just so far from that while i think jackson and bamba to a certain extent probably they seem to project like they're going to be able to be that kind of defender and part of what has made them so good recently is how they look in their nba gear as they come out onto the court and it's the kind of officially licensed NBA gear you can buy from Fanatics. I've got a coaching polo that instantly makes me a better analyst. And I'm sure wearing their stuff will improve your game too. I'm wearing one right now. And it's by far the most comfortable shirt I own. And I love the design. Fanatics is the world's largest collection of officially licensed fan gear from all the leagues, teams, and players you love. There's a gigantic sale happening right now over at Fanatics.com, and you can get jerseys, sweatshirts, winter jackets, backpacks, tons of apparel and gear, all branded with your favorite team and or player. And if you buy a jersey of a player that gets traded within 90 days, they'll replace that jersey with another player from that team or your favorite player's jersey on their new team. They've got thousands of products for college and pro hoops fans. 
Join Fanatics Rewards today and earn fan cash on every purchase. And get free shipping through December 31st by using my link, fanatics.com slash coach Nick. That's fanatics.com slash coach Nick and get free shipping through the end of the year. Well, you brought up Embiid, and I feel like we should wrap our seal in our practice with a little discussion about him because I was digging through some numbers, and I, we were kind of texting back and forth, and I started to realize something that I think that hasn't been talked a lot about, and that is his drop-off as the game goes on. And what we have seen a lot of is you know him grabbing his shorts and being sort of tired and maybe out of shape for the fourth quarter. Uh, it's frustrating when I see people trying to defend him, saying, well, he's scored 30 points. What do you want him to do? His course is going to be tired, but it's like tired to the point where the guy's just going to dribble right by you and lay it in. The basket is sort of defeats the purpose of all those 30 points you scored before. So um, you've seen him up close. Uh, are you noticing th- that this is a, a concern and an issue for this year? This has been a concern and issue his entire career, I think. it's something's Something's different this year, and we're seeing it in the numbers. We can go over that in a second, but... He's always been a little heavier than he should be. He's never had that super low body fat percentage. I've never been 100% sold that a guy has to have like the lowest body fat percentage imaginable for to consider him to be in the best shape. But we see that Joe's, you know, Joe carries a little bit of extra weight. People around him have told me multiple times, different people from different groups have told me that he's a little bit, he's always been a little out of shape. He carries a little bit of baby fat on him. And even though he's super muscular, that does weigh him down. I mean, the guy's probably – he must weigh like 290 or something like that. I mean, uh, just so you people at home know, none of these NBA players weigh as little as it says. I mean, I remember you know, Yabu, Gershon Yabu Selly in Boston is listed at 260. And I mentioned that to someone in the front office and they started gla- they started cracking up hysterically. <laughs> yeah, like he probably weighs like 300, 310 right. or something Easy. like that. Like all these guys weigh – Boban Marjanovic does not weigh what two – whatever they say he weighs. He weighs way more than that. And same thing with Joel. And Joel makes it look so effortless. But at a certain point, the amount of running that he does – and I, I think a big part of it is that he's a committed defender in chasing out to the three-point line, retreating back and stuff like that. But we see – and especially in the second half of games, his pick and roll defense gets a little bit lazier. His pivot defense gets a little bit lazier. He's not kind of bouncing from strong side to weak side, stuff like that. He's kind of parading in the middle. And there was actually a play in the San Antonio game where San Antonio really kicked their ass. That really stood out to me. I think it was actually in the first half. But uh, DeMar DeRozan blew by his defender at the elbow and drove straight on Embiid and dunked down Embiid's head. And Bede was just standing under the rim and never, never jumped out to contest him. And that, that looked to me like someone who was just a little fatigued. And you know, to Embiid's credit, he's always willing to go up there and you know he's willing to risk being posterized on. But in that case, it seemed like someone who was just a little bit slowed down and just someone who needs to lose a little bit of weight or just up his conditioning a little bit more, maybe control his intake a little bit more. I don't really know much about his dieting, but I know about his workout plan and. You know, I th- I think that's what obviously will make the difference between him being a guy that I mean, right now is putting up incredible numbers, but his team is not is not they're kind of off and on executing late in games and are defending they're kind of hemorrhaging points in the fourth quarter. They've been doing it all year, especially since the uh, Butler trade, and 
you know, if you want to spit the numbers out on that, I mean, the numbers are pretty remarkable. Yeah. Well, let's do that a little bit. So I know we're listening to this, but see if I can get your mind's eye to focus or wrap your head around this. But in the first half, the net rating is plus 18.1. So they're blowing teams out in that first half with him on the floor. In the second half, his, his net rating is negative 5.7. And all the numbers take a really big hit. Effective field goal goes from 54.1% in the first half to 44% in the second half. It's 10 percentage points. That's a huge drop. Uh, and everything else aside from that, now his usage also then drops from about 36 to 31. That's 5 percentage points of usage where he's suddenly not as involved as he was in the first half. And that's also uh, uh, an important thing uh, to look at. Now, in between quarters, it does break out a little bit differently as well. And the question then would be, okay, well, where would you kind of shave these numbers? Because uh, really quickly, do you know how many minutes he's playing per game? Because now I, I need to get that one up real quick. Um, uh, 33, I think. At least in the last – we were using the last 16 games yeah. as a sample size because since Jimmy Butler, he was right. averaging about 32.5 per game, per game right. I think. So it's not even that much. It's 34 for the whole season and whatever Butler is. So that's the problem. It's not even like they're playing him too many minutes because 32 is reasonable. But I think it perhaps – you know how Dirk has these kind of interesting rotations where they take him out really early in the first uh, quarter and then they put him back later? They might need to kind of play around with that more and maybe bring him in later in the fourth quarter so he can have the last five minutes of a really strong run versus what you sent over, which is that really cool heat map, where what, what times he usually come in in the fourth quarter? Well, so here's the thing. So he, and I think this hurts his, his numbers. I didn't get a chance to look up the Muscala lineup with Landry Shamit, but he's out there with Redick, Shamit, Muscala, and McConnell in the late third, early fourth. And I think that probably hurts his offensive numbers a decent amount. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he he checks out from around the nine-minute mark to like the six-minute mark. And then he, he closes it out with Simmons and Redick. And then I think it's been mostly Wilson Chandler and Jimmy Butler as the other two guys closing it out lately. And, you know, part of the issue is Wilson Chandler looks like a shell of himself right now. Uh, I think he's just hopefully he's just recovering from injury and he's going to you know, work. Yeah. He just you know the playbook for one, which is a big issue for their you know, the late game execution on offense, which is why they've been devolving to a lot of you know, Jimmy Butler isolation stuff and Embiid post ups and stuff like that. Because Wilson doesn't know. I think there is a there are a bunch of plays where like kind of like Joel or Redick are basically calling out the plays for him. The thing is, he's been here the whole year. Butler just got here a month ago, and it seems like he knows the playbook better already. So that's already a bad sign. But Chandler, his main role was to be a three and D guy, and his defense has been really sluggish. Yeah, and you know, it's sluggish in a in, in hemorrhaging in a team where you have Embiid as your backline defense, and you have Ben Simmons out there as your point guard defender, who is you know basically a really good four defender. So there, there's no reason for their defense to put up you know a one thirteen net rating in the second half when Embiid is on the floor. I mean, they should be well above that. And they're, what are they, I think in the fourth quarter, it's a little bit better. It's, they're 109.5 for defensive rating with Embiid out there. But their offensive rating is 116.8. So that's pretty impressive at least. Right. Now, just to translate it the way my mind works, looking at this heat map, he goes out with about, you know, four minutes to go in the third, and he comes back with about eight or nine minutes to go in the fourth. Um, that might be the real key here. And I, and, and just off the top of my head, I would say he probably should come out another minute or so earlier in the third 
and then maybe come back with eight minutes to go or seven and a half in the fourth just to give him a little bit more of that space there plus the timeout in between quarters. That might do enough to kind of give him juice, um, you know, because something's going on. And I bet you, you know, the, the beginning of the third quarter, I'm sure, is probably OK when they're fresh off of the half halftime. And there's probably that moment, and especially with that lineup you just described, where it kind of goes down, uh, goes downhill, where maybe they can get, um, you know, somebody else in there to kind of, you know, be more of a defensive presence and focus on that with some, some energy, and then he can come back in and finish. Uh, I hope Brett Brown's looking at this because clearly it's going to be a problem going in the playoffs, I think. Well, they obviously need to acquire someone because, I mean, the big issue that they, I think, just like the first issue is that they need him out there with the second unit because – they don't have another center that they can put out there because Muscala has demonstrated defensively. It just doesn't work if you have him as the five. And I've been, I've been tweeting hashtag free Rashawn Holmes for like four years now. And they finally freed him. Unfortunately, it was by letting him go to Phoenix and they kept Amir Johnson, who I've known Amir for a long time. I love the guy, but this year it's really, his game has fallen off. Yeah. And he's really valuable to have in the locker room. And I understand them keeping him from the you know, perspective of having a hardworking guy in the locker room that can really help them, uh, you know, kind of maintain their chemistry, especially when you have Jimmy Butler coming in there where it tests your chemistry so much and you need a positive voice in the locker room like Amir's. But they miss having, I mean, look at Rashawn Holmes and Nerland Sowell this year are both playing pretty, pretty well as backup bigs and they don't have. I mean, you know, they shouldn't have their own as well at this point, but they should have kept Rashawn and they they need to hit the market and find a good defensive big that they can put out there so that they're not relying on the second unit being carried by Embiid. I agree. Well, we'll just see what happens with that and if they can even, you know, make a deal for somebody. But uh, if they don't, they're going to be disappointed because the Bucks have already kind of vaulted in front of them. Uh, the Bucks are vaulted in front of the, your Celtics uh, at this point. So we'll have to see what they're going to do to make a move or if the Celtics are just going to rely on osmosis and getting better but uh we certainly <laughs> well, they don't have any bigs anymore so they're yeah. gonna need to find one too there you go so we couldn't get any better doing this podcast you and i together so great stuff jared as always make sure that you follow him uh tell us everybody where your uh your twitter account is again uh jared weiss nba ah right there's no underscore in there or anything right no, I dropped that bad boy a long time ago. Uh, good, good, good. Jared Weiss, NBA. As always, you can find me at B-Ball Breakdown. And thank you so much for coming on the show and breaking this down for us. And thank you, everybody, for listening. And don't forget, sports fans, at B-Ball Breakdown, not a channel, we're a conversation. You win? Are you win, Jared? Nah, I'm going to bed. <laughs>